to uh, introduce to you our speaker for the day. Uh, as Dick said, in our enthusiasm for uh, getting the group together today, uh, you get two speakers. Uh, one, our good friend Dick Rath, and we thank you, Dick, and my apologies to you uh, for uh, <coughs> putting you with another man uh, when I know you can carry the ball very well yourself especially the basketball, as I read in Newsday. Uh, but uh, again, thanks, Dick. Our second speaker dealing with the topic uh, that came out of a little meeting that, that a group of us had dealing with stress uh, is Dr. Fred Trinkline, and he will speak to us for a few minutes on how we as people in business and in the church can deal with stress, which is very much a part of our life. Fred, thank you. Thank you, Pastor Frelick. It's an honor to be here to talk to you on this founding meeting of the Suffolk Business and Professional Group. I'm not here as an authority on the topic that Pastor Freilich just mentioned to you. In fact, it came as a little bit of a surprise because the usual request I have for speaking to groups is either on some aspect of science or going on an eclipse somewhere in the world or some similar topic. But as I thought about it, I felt myself qualified, at least in this respect, that as a human being, I'm subjected to stress as much as any other human being, and so I guess I am an authority in that respect. And then as I did some reading on the subject, I found out that even the world's authorities on stress say there are no authorities on stress. So I feel a little more comfortable about that. And in one other respect, I'm also somewhat qualified, and that is that in a very recent time period, I have had experiences when it comes to stress that I'd like to relate to you to some extent because there's a very wonderful and uh, happy ending that involves our Lord Jesus Christ. I've never had the opportunity to tell this story before, and I hope that it will not be taken as a personal reference or aggrandizement, but rather as a story of spiritual healing, for that's what it truly was. A teacher undergoes stresses of his own. I read an article on stress recently that says that every human being thinks that they have more stress than everybody else. There was an article in Newsday yesterday that said traditional sex roles can make stress hard to bear. I'll refer to this again later, because the author has what she believes are solutions to stress in men and women and how these solutions differ. <clears throat> I want to tell you a little about how stress works in a teacher's life. We had a physics examination last week, and if you've ever taken physics, you know that the exams are not always that successful. Well, this class is no exception. And when I handed the test back, I was so disgusted, I said, I'd like all the dumbbells in this class to get up. Nobody got up. Finally, somebody in the back row got to his feet. And I said, in surprise, do you mean to tell me you admit you're a dumbbell? And he said, no, but I hate to see you standing there alone. <laughs> That's stress in the classroom. <laughs> what do you do next? Well, you repent. <laughs> you don't say those things, and you go on. What is stress? 
I did some reading from one of the authorities in the world on stress. In fact, he's called, his nickname, Dr. Stress. His name is Dr. Hans Selle. He's from Canada. He has written 1,600 articles on stress, 33 books. He has the world's largest library on the subject of stress with 120,000 entries. He says in his article, first of all, that stress is necessary. If you don't have any stress, you die. Stress is the stuff of life. The problem is, he says, which kind of stress is necessary and which kind is disastrous. <clears throat> he calls the nice kind of stress that produces great things U-stress, E-U, stress. And the kind of stress that destroys you is distress. My son is a business manager for a corporation on Long Island, and he came home the other day, and we talked about this topic. I said, son, do you have stress in your business? And he said, yes, I was told in a management conference that stress is like a violin string. You stretch it too tight, and it snaps. You don't stretch it tight enough, and you don't play. You want the tension just right so you can play the song. That's not a bad analogy. You don't want too much stress, that's hyper-stress. You don't want too little stress, that's hypo-stress. Another thing I learned, both from reading and from my own experience, is it's not the environment that produces stress. Stress is not a matter of what's happening to you. You don't change it by changing your environment, you change it by changing you. Stress is a matter of how you react with the environment, not how the environment affects you. I read the story of a person who went into stress symptoms while he was under an anesthetic in the hospital, during an operation. What are these symptoms? They're classic. It's really very simple to tell whether you're having distress. There are some very classic symptoms that do not vary a great deal from person to person. Your heartbeat goes up and stays up day and night. You sweat more than usual, even when it's cold outside. You can't think the way you used to. You can't concentrate on a topic the way you used to in the old days. It's not aging, it's distress. I was at a funeral in Michigan this week and people came up and said, boy, my memory is slipping. I can't remember so much about the old days of where our dear departed and did so many great things for us. I said, are you sure that your memory is slipping or that you just don't have a great deal more to remember than the young kids do? I don't think percentage-wise I'm forgetting any more than my kids are. I just have thousands of more memories. But when you're in distress, you can't concentrate for more than a few minutes at a time. You're irritable. The least little thing upsets you. And a very, very classic symbol is that you can't sit still. You have to move. You have to walk all the time. The doctor told about a patient who came in for analysis, and the patient said, you mind, doc, if I walk while I talk? That guy was in trouble, he said. Another symptom is insomnia 
Last week, a survey showed 80 million people in this country have insomnia. Some use it for good. They keep notepads by their beds. I was at a Futures conference in Houston, Texas, where Alvin Toffler and others from around the world came to talk about how you get inspired to do things. And he talked about the president of the University of Hawaii who kept a notepad by his bed because he had learned that during the night, very frequently, he will have visions that solve his industrial problems and those of his friends. He had one friend who was president of a business and his engineers couldn't come up with any kind of solution to a specific technical problem. And all of a sudden, a light went on in the ceiling, he said. And a drawing came up. And he started drawing it. It was a furnace that he needed for his business. He drew it. He brought it to his work the next day and showed it to one of his engineers. He said, how does this look to you? He said, hey, that's terrific. Never thought of that before. Where did you get that idea? <laughs> the guy said, you wouldn't believe it. He said, try me. He said, I saw it on the ceiling of my bedroom. He expected the fellow to laugh and he said, aren't you gonna laugh? He said, where do you think I get my ideas? <laughs> but the 80 million people don't all have designs of furnaces on the ceiling. They worry. They worry because they're not sleeping and that keeps them awake. They don't sleep because they're afraid of dying, because they don't want to lose grip on reality and so they don't sleep. Those are the traditional and classic symptoms. They vary a little one from the other. What causes this? What causes it? The overriding reason that doctors have gleaned from people in distress and why it is so much more prevalent now than it was 50 years ago is the loss of the ability to adapt because we have no code of behavior the way we once did when the church had a bigger influence in American life. This is from Dr. Selly, Dr. Stress, who said that unless we get back in this world a code of behavior, a religion, a goal, a God-given destiny, a motivation, we will continue to suffer from what is now the leading cause of death in this country, stress. Stress-related illnesses lead all other, including cancer. He quotes from a Greek philosopher who said, no wind blows in favor of a ship without a port of destination. We used to say there is no wind that doesn't blow somebody some good. Not true if the ship doesn't know where it's going. How do you treat it? What do you do? Well, as in every other disability, there are two ways to treat stress. One is to treat the symptoms, and one is to treat the causes. We're very busy in this country treating the symptoms of stress. I was asked to write one of a series of articles that I'll distribute to you later in the Lutheran Witness last month called The Mental Altering of Life. And I told the editor in St. Louis, I don't know anything about the mental altering of life. And they said, well, you can find out just like everybody else. 
which means that most of the things you read in magazines and books are written by people who were assigned the topic and were told, find out. <laughs> and maybe that's good, because I at least came to it with a neutral point of view, not knowing anything. <laughs> so I called and wrote to people around the country who were considered authorities in the mental altering of life. I found out about Dr. Hosapucci in California, for example, who took a man who couldn't walk because of intense pain after he had fallen and broken a vertebrae in his back. Dr. Hosobucci, for the first time in medical history, implanted an electrode in the brain of this man, sealed it up, had wires go down to his chest, and then he gave the man a transmitter. And when he wants to walk, he turns a knob on this transmitter, which by radio sends a signal to his brain where it releases morphine in his brain. His own brain manufactures the morphine necessary to kill the pain. Not an external pill. It's called endorphin. And he goes a whole day without pain. If he goes to the dentist in the morning, give it a six. <laughs> That's treating the symptom, isn't it? In fact, it may even be a little more. It may even be treating the cause, because now we're talking about people creating their own chemicals, not taking them externally. Osobuchi found out, for example, when a person takes a placebo, a sugar pill, for pain, doesn't know it isn't a painkiller, he can fool his body into thinking that it's a painkiller, and his body will manufacture the painkiller. So they're not just sugar pills anymore. They are better than the external morphine tablets. You know what this could lead to? One police detective wrote this scenario, and this appeared in a journal recently. When you let a person out on parole, so many come back that there's something we have to think of to change their behavior so they don't come back. How about implanting electrodes in the parolee's head? So when he's out on parole for a year, we can monitor his impulses. And at the police station, we can see where he is, what his body fluids are doing. And if it should happen, for example, that they see he's on the corner of 5th and Main, and his blood pressure is going up and his heartbeat rising, and there's a jewelry store in that corner, we can conclude that the guy is up to no good. He wants to go in and rob the jewelry store. So they give him a seven. <laughs> and it changes his impulses through his body chemistry. And he's no longer inclined to rob the store. Somebody told me, how do they know that somebody didn't walk across on the other side of the street, some gal that he was interested in, and that's what sent his body fluids and everything up. Well, some of these things haven't been perfected yet, you see, so we'll have to wait to see. I heard about a doctor in Cleveland, Dr. Schneider, who said that we now have the technology to transplant complete heads. He said he's done it repeatedly, with animals, complete heads. He's a devout Catholic Christian, and he said he sees no moral and ethical obstacles to such an operation on a human being who's hopelessly ill. Head transplants. We could go on and on talking about physical treatments of the symptoms of stress, all kinds of chemicals and treatments. But more important, and especially to the Christian, is the way in which we deal with the root causes of stress. 
Like every other evil that besets mankind, it's the result of sin. Without sin, there would be no distress, there would only be eustress. Eustress as in the word euphoria. We'd all feel great. Now Newsday says in their article that I referred to once before, that one reason why men and women have stress in this country today of the distress variety is that they have their roles. That there is a feminine role and there's a masculine role. The masculine stereotype is that if there is a tense situation, you drive yourself to conquer it. Whereas typically it says in typical roles, women would say when a difficult situation comes up, it must be my fault. I must be better prepared. I must take another course. I must fix myself up better and then I can conquer the situation. And the author of the book on stress between men and women here says we should mix the roles more. Men should act more like the traditional woman role of feeling more guilty about what you did. Whereas women should be more aggressive. And then if they both act a little bit like the other, then the stress will be reduced. What we're talking about there, of course, is what has often been called, and especially recently, biofeedback. You convince yourself. You cure yourself, in other words. You can buy a machine now for $150 from Edmund Scientific Corporation, where you strap yourself up for blood pressure and other vital signs, and particularly for brain waves. There are three kinds of brain waves, alpha, theta, and something else. Well, the alpha waves are the idling waves. When you're not doing anything, there's an alpha wave. If there aren't any alpha waves, most doctors will say you're dead. The other two kinds are the creative waves. They say that Henry Ford, for example, could create his own brain waves by staring at a blank wall, and he'd come up with a new car. Or Edison could fuel his theta waves by taking a five-minute nap and then come up with a new invention, which he did every 20 days for 20 years. Four minutes.